whole spading and neutering thing, I didn't know that that could be contributing to the cancer thing. So let's talk about some action steps. Um, I think you mentioned some type of food. Do, do you produce and sell that or is that somewhere else they can no, buy? No, no. And so that's the whole thing. So the original Crock-Pet diet I developed whoo, back in 2006, just as the first pet food recall hit. And it is a recipe of home-cooked food, proteins, brassica vegetables, other veggies, grains and or beans based and or, you know, some other starch based on what that individual pet can tolerate and then healthy fats. So it's a, there's a course that we've got a great question and answer group every week to help you learn how to cook and how to modify the diet for your pet. Whether you do mine, whether you do Dr. Judy's, whether you do somebody else's recipe, start incorporating real food into your pet's diet. Hello and welcome to the Health Detective Podcast by Functional Diagnostic Nutrition. We bring you interviews from people who have conquered the trickiest of health challenges using the Functional Diagnostic Nutrition philosophy and similar healing modalities. You're going to hear from experts who have been through the ringer with their health issues and yet managed to come out on the other side. If you're interested in natural healing and or functional medicine, congrats, you are in the right place. You can always visit us at functionaldiagnosticnutrition.com, but for now, here is today's episode. All right. Hello there, Dr. Roberts. Welcome to the Health Detective Podcast. How are you? I'm well, Evan. How are you? I can hardly remember a time I was better. Thank you for asking. So we had, <laughs> <It's> you, awesome. <laughs> that always gets people, right? They like that one. Um, I heard that you did a fantastic job for us at the Health Space Unmasked event. And that's why I tell you guys on the podcast to hop on. And most of the people that end up popping on are our practitioners. We don't get a ton of traffic from the podcast to there. It's like a whole separate audience sometimes. Um, but I'm telling you guys, there are really great events that we're doing there. They're longer than the podcast. They're more interactive. I mean, you can ask the person questions. And this was our most attended one, if I'm not mistaken. Um, when you count the replays, like when people watched afterwards, it was the most attended one already. And it just happened in early March. So um, it makes sense too. It's not only that Dr. Roberts is cool, it's a very special topic that I don't think anyone is really discussing in an intelligent way. And it's this whole aspect of like doing functional medicine with pets. Um, and it's happened to a few of our practitioners throughout the years. I know that they've ran some of our labs, believe it or not, on uh, their animals, because yes, you can do that. And, and I'm sure we'll touch on that in some degree today. But um, I just want to get started with you real quick, because again, it is a separate audience. So We'll not spend too much time on this, um, but how did you get into this line of work? This is so specific. It's already niche enough to get into functional medicine. Now we're really pushing it by adding um, the animals in too. So how the heck did you get into this? So how do most alternative health practitioners get into alternative health? And I Typically, got really sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, got I was about sick. to say. <laughs> yeah, I got sick and I had a dog that was the love of my life, Arnold. He lived to be 17. His last six months were not pretty. And I didn't know what else to do for him. So that was my promise to him as he was, uh, as I, as I euthanized him and wished him off into whatever is next in life or afterlife, I promised him I would find a better way because what we have to offer in conventional medicine, whether it's for pets or people, for people that are in a chronic disease situation um, at the end of their life is extremely limited. And what we have to offer them to actually help them feel better is even more limited. So that's been just, that's been my driving force is what could I have done more to help Arnold? And everything I've learned to help support my own health is what I've ended up applying to pets, plus digging into some special uh, issues that people don't get, but pets do. Got it. And I mean, yeah, that makes total sense because everyone that shows up on this show that is helping other humans, right? They've all been through the ringer. I literally get maybe one person every three months on this podcast that actually has not really been through any major health challenges, but just chose wow. to do it, which is very special and cool in its own right. So I'm curious if I may ask, what did, um, what were you dealing with? Because it sounds like, like you said, you had personal health issues, correct? Oh, golly. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, this is back in 2005, 2006. I was eating the standard American diet. I was probably 80 pounds more than I am right now. Um, 
I had IBS, I had fibromyalgia, I have four blown cervical discs. I was not a very happy person. And I, I was working ridiculous hours. I was working 80 to 120 hours a week easily. Um, the, I mean, the caseload I was dealing with was extremely heavy. I was euthanizing five to seven pets every day. So, I mean, that takes a huge emotional toll. So I was really, really, really lucky in 2006 to find a, an MD that was doing functional medicine in Charleston, South Carolina. And I didn't like the answers he had. I'm like, well, how long is it going to take me to feel better? And he's like, at least six months. I'm like, well, but, but I want the pill to make me better right now. And, and, and so, you know, so he asked me the question that we all ask our, our, the folks we're supporting and how long did it take you to get sick? Oh, three years. Yeah. So there you go. Okay. Well, and yeah, that's, I mean, that's actually kind of decent even in our world. Like sometimes, I mean, myself, it was 14 years of dealing with symptoms almost before it even dawned on me. Oh, maybe it's something lifestyle wise. Cause this started for me super young. So you're, you're truly just subject to whatever paradigm the adults in your life may have had. And my parents are awesome people, but they're individuals that were very at the time, Western medicine focused. So they wanted to get results just as bad as me, but you're just not even thinking outside that box. Most of us that at that age, you're just doing what the adults say. So, um, one thing I want to hone in on because I'm always, I'm, fascinated by how people come to these conclusions and make the initial jump, especially someone who came from this more conventional way of thinking, probably. What was the final straw that led to you going to a functional practitioner? Because I know that you found them, but for a lot of people, that's something that they would completely dismiss. Um, And it's sad, but I've seen people go to their grave still dismissing these individuals because they are so set that that can't work. So what opens your mind to, hey, maybe I got to go do that? Well, I mean, with fibromyalgia at that point, the paradigm in conventional medicine is non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. When that's not enough, then we'll add in some narcotics and some more narcotics and some more narcotics. And I saw my own clients go from being beautiful, lovely people to junkies and to the point literally of trying to get me to write prescriptions for narcotics for their dogs because they were cut off at the drugstore. And so with fibromyalgia, I knew that that was not the path to follow. And that's what made me start looking. And at this point, um, you know, I had already enrolled in uh, traditional Chinese veterinary medicine training, acupuncture and herbal medicine at the Qi Institute. So it's like I made the promise to Arnold and I made me keep the promise for myself as well. Cool. All right. Awesome. Well, uh, I'm glad that you eventually obviously got a lot better because you seem to be doing great now. You said 80 pounds. You wouldn't even, I wouldn't even know that. Right. So did it take the six months or did it take longer or less time to get better? It it took six months to feel decent. So Mm -hmm. what I thought was normal three, you know, three years prior was actually decent and uh, it took another year to feel good. Yeah, fair enough. And I think this is worth mentioning to people because if you want to get better naturally and and even functionally, whatever you want to call it, it's possible, but you got to understand that we're healing the body, right? So if the body healed overnight, we wouldn't be having the health issues that we have, right? It'd be pretty simple to fix this stuff. So um, give it some time under, have realistic expectations. Yes, the needle should be moving for you. You know, Um, I would even say as this stuff gets more and more advanced, right? Because now there's a lot more effort being put into this whole space um, than there was back in 2006, right? So you probably can feel a lot better even quicker. We have a lot of people that go through FDN type programs and they feel better in a few months, but it's going to be more than a day. It's not the pill, uh, but the, exactly. the benefit of that is it's more permanent, right? You don't just stop uh, eating this way and then all of a sudden go back to square one. It, you know, you can kind of heal and then get some flexibility back in your life versus that pill. Maybe it makes you feel better at best in a day or two, but you take it away and then, oh, I got the same problems and a whole lot more than I had before, usually, right? Right on, right on. Yeah. Cool. So for Arnold, we did this, we figured this out. And um, obviously you, you hated seeing those last six months of his life and 17 is still actually really good for a dog. What are, um, what are some of the basic things that we can start with? Like, where are people messing up? Because like, I always know that people would be willing to do anything for their pets, usually like generally speaking more than they're willing to do for their own health. And yet yes. I see people feeding them this crazy dog food or treats with, you know, all kinds of chemicals in it. So where are just like the foundational things that people are messing up on that they don't even think about when it comes to pet health? You, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, if we're, 
what I always tell people is you cannot outpill a bad diet, whether that's supplements, medications, whatever. If you're feeding that pet junk, then you're going to get that result. And uh, so that's that's where I started is with the original crock pet diet. And that has been the mainstay. It is a cooked whole food diet that is man- you can manipulate based on what your dog or your cat needs. And that is truly the foundation of health. I mean, Socrates said this for a reason, let food be thy medicine and thy medicine be food. And that's the truth. If we don't start with where, what we're eating, what we're feeding our pets, then we're not going to make significant progress. And sadly, there's all these really expensive um, you know, high quality human grade ingredient brands of food that are, um, that are dried, that are freeze dried, that are some, in some cases frozen and shipped fresh. And those are better certainly than the bag of Royal Canaan or, or some sort of prescription veterinary diet, but there's nothing that beats a home cooked meal. So if you think about it this way, we can get this beautiful, incredibly expensive, expensive uh, freeze-dried food, but do you want to eat power bars for the, you know, so it's like, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, you can do it and the astronauts can do it, but even they like the, you know, to rehydrate at least their food, but that's not what good nutrition is. It's food in its natural form that is cooked appropriately. And I'm saying cooked because most of my colleagues are, will tell you that raw is the only way. I'm going to tell you that there is not the only way. There is the way that is right for that pet. And then in my hands for the vast majority of my my clients and and their pets, it's been cooked food. Okay, now this is great because I always, um, at the audience that listens regularly knows this, I like to go in with a healthy level of ignorance. So what that means is I never not look up our guests, but I try to not go so in-depth that I already know all the answers to stuff. So this is actually genuine because what I try to do is, I want to put myself in the state that the audience will be in. I want to ask the questions that they will ask. And so when you said cook, I pre- or cooked, I appreciate you specifying that because my first thought that went through my head is like, okay, like, all right, I'm not a dog expert or animal expert. Shouldn't they be eating raw? I mean, my, my little puppy, she can't, you know, whip out a pan and start cooking stuff up, but clearly um, you're the expert here and there's more benefit to it. So you said it might not be right for your dog. So I don't know if this is something that people can even figure out at home necessarily, but like, what, what is the advantage to a dog getting cooked food when that obviously at the very least, it's not something they could do naturally. So what is the benefit to it? Well, so think about where dogs came from. They split off from wolves about 40,000 years ago. Uh, We showed up about, Homo sapiens showed up about 50,000 years ago. Neanderthals had already been cooking. We, this is part of why we are thought to have evolved our giant brains uh, is because of cooked food. It makes the nutrients more available. And that's like heresy. But anyway, so Same thing with dogs. They evolved eating our garbage first, what they could scavenge. Uh, You know, they're indiscriminate omnivores and they will eat anything that's available to them. Mm -hmm. So scavenge food and then what we fed, you know, what our leftovers like, oh, well, you know, throw the dog the bone or whatever or the the grain or the bread that we've cooked, started cooking, baking 30,000 years ago, or, and then finally the last step is what we actually fed them. And until the 1950s, the bag of food was for ultra wealthy people with hunting dogs. So this whole concept of feeding a nutritionally balanced diet in every mite, uh, bite is just, it, it's a marketing promotion. Hmm. And many of my colleagues will say, but, oh, raw is the ancestral diet of dogs. And that is true, but for wolves and the progenitor species before them, it's also our ancestral diet for progenitor species prior to Homo neanderthalus. So that's kind of it. Yeah. 
Fair enough. And I, that's actually the first time I've heard that. That's really cool. Because, I mean, my one friend's a dog trainer, and even still to this day, they, they've experimented with a million different things, right? So they don't have one specific answer. But regardless, he always buys super high-quality stuff. But I know they actually, I think, even presently go back and forth. Like, sometimes it's a Doberman. So sometimes the dog gets this raw food, and then other times um, it gets cooked. But it's like a huge prescription, right? They know exactly what things to put in for them. Um, I don't know if they're necessarily doing it in the same way that you would, right? Because, again, they're trying to... Pr- it's kind of like uh, bodybuilding humans, right? We wouldn't necessarily call bodybuilding humans to be the perfect diet, but that's yes. what they're kind of doing for the dog. It's like something that'll buff it up and, and make it super athletic. So this is interesting. I think a lot of people, because I'm, I consider myself fairly educated in health, but not the animal side. My initial thought is, oh, the animals must supposed to be eating raw, but this makes total sense because, yeah, they kind of evolved with us. I can never really picture uh, my family's dogs. We have... um. Uh, a Shishan at our house. And then we have a Chesapeake Bay Retriever here. And so she's like 16 pounds, cute as can be. I can't picture her going out and like ripping up an animal and eating that raw. So like, she's so domesticated that obviously she does need different foods. Like she kind of, um, you know, moved along with us here. So what do you think about, and I don't mean, I hope this isn't too simple of a question for you, but what do you think about the whole grain thing? Because I've heard this argued back and forth a lot of times. I did take the risk and our family dog has eaten grain free uh, pretty much her entire life. She is unbelievably healthy. I mean, she's 11 years old. She's Sean, like I said, jumps off the couch that's four feet high, sprints up the stairs, chases deer. I mean, she's never had a health issue yet. So I don't know if it's just the food or other things that we've done, but that seemed to have gone well. So is the grains an ultimatum or is there a time and place for that in the cooked food for the animals? No, there's no, there's no ultimatum on anything, right? Because in, in the United States of America, uh, and I'm sorry, I don't know if you can hear, hear my kitty back there. Can you hear him? Oh, barely, okay, barely. No. And it's something I can't okay, probably cool. get out. All right, cool. All right. So in the United States of America, we're like, oh, coconut oil is bad for you in the 70s, right? And so they pulled all that stuff out of the, like, that's what used to be the butter for movie theater uh, popcorn. And I hope so delicious, right? And then now, 30, 40, 50 years later, now coconut oil cures everything. And so the truth is somewhere in between. It's great for some things. It's not so great for other things. It will increase your LDL cholesterol level if you eat a ton of it. Um, And there's starting to be some evidence that, yes, that goes up with keto diets, but maybe that's not such a good thing. So grains, if you can tolerate them and they nurture you, yes, eat them. If you can't tolerate them and they make you sick, don't eat them. Same thing with gra- with uh, legumes, which is what ends up going into grain-free diets as a carbohydrate source. Beans are wonderful. They're nutritious. However, if your GI tract cannot tolerate them, you probably shouldn't eat them. And what happened with the whole grain-free food debacle is that 70, 65 to 70% of the calories of those foods are beans. And beans do contain anti-nutrients called lectins and phytates. And if, you know, even cooking them thoroughly, if you're eating that many beans, that's probably going to create some issues. So it, it's, that's part of the problem about how we see food uh, in the United States. It's either good for us, bad for us, and then we eat like, oh, blueberries are good for us. I eat two cups every day. I mean, it's just there's no... Let's let's make it more balanced and complete and be a little more rational about how we approach food. Yeah, you're like one step ahead of me. I feel like anything I'm thinking, you you already answered for me. <laughs> I was, I was kind of like, I was thinking about this as you said it. I'm like, duh, Ev, like... If someone asked me, are grains bad for humans? My answer would be, well, I actually do terribly on grains, but other people I know do just fine. So why would it not be the same for dogs when we have so much diversity amongst um, them? Like that makes total sense. Yes, some dogs might do a lot better with just more meat. Some dogs might be able to handle a little bit of everything. So, okay, I feel like, um, yeah, I need to not make special rules. They're still animals just like us and they're going to have different conditions and different circumstances. Exactly. And it's like, if you like, so keto is a big thing and I've eaten keto for years off and on for, for health reasons. And, but if you look at the lot, a lot of the products that are designed for keto for snacks and, you know, something you can grab at the store, it's got a bunch of garbage in it. So you just, you have to think, you know, what's working, what's not working. Okay. Is the raw work diet working for my dog? Fantastic. Ooh, when he eats cooked food, it's not so good. 
and and so that happens sometimes. But most of the time, raw food's not really working for my dog. His stool is always soft. Wow, amazing! On cooked food with more fiber, he's doing great. Mm-hmm. So you have there to you really go. look at yourself, at your pet, and then make decisions based off of what you're seeing. And so it's not an overnight like, yes, this is the way. You may see in two weeks or 30 days that, oh, it's not quite the way. And you have to make some modifications. Got it, guys. So just like, I mean, as the podcast implies, just like we need to be these health detectives for ourselves, we can be health detectives for our pets. And in fact, we're obligated to because they don't have that ability to do that in the same way we do. So if we're going to if we're going to have them as part of our family, I think that's kind of one thing that we owe them. So diets and an obvious one. I think if I went out, even if they don't know the answer, which I didn't, if I went out and asked anyone where is like one place we're maybe messing up with our pets, they would all say, OK, well, maybe diet. Are there other things that we're messing up on that might not be so obvious? I'm already thinking, like, what about their sleep cycle compared to ours and, and all these things? So is there another one that is kind of uh, a huge thing that's affecting? Yes. Yeah. I mean, the next big category, facts, uh, frankly, is environmental toxins. So think about it this way. So if you've got, you know, the, the dog you mentioned earlier, the, the little little guy that's like 16 to 20 pounds, or like our little dog, Hayo, she's six pounds, they're much lower to the ground. And so there is dust and stuff falling from the air onto the ground. And all of that dust is laden with a chemical soup that we really don't want to think about on a daily basis, or we might be immobilized. But these guys are snuffling it up from the carpet. They're licking their feet and ingesting that those chemicals. And so the other part is that we are also applying pesticides to them or giving them a pill every month or every three months that contains pesticides to keep fleas and uh, all of this other stuff off of them. Sometimes, you know, if you, I practiced in South Carolina, sometimes you need some help with flea control, but The point is, is that their overall environmental toxin load is astronomically higher than ours is. In fact, in cats, their toxin levels are 96% higher than humans. Uh, So you can check that out on Environmental Working Group. And in dogs, their toxin levels are 46% higher than humans. So their load is much greater. So this is part of why, circling back to diet, Helping nurture the microbiome is incredibly important. Helping to support the liver so that it can efficiently and effectively get rid of these toxins is incredibly important. So that's the other massive thing is to focus on aiding the body in detoxification. Jeez, I never um I never even thought about that from like a household perspective. I think as far as I've gotten was I had my dad, thankfully he agreed because he's always been like a traditional guy. He smokes cigarettes. Like he's a great dad. He's just, you know, he's in that kind of mindset for health. Right on. And um, he was uh, spraying glyphosate everywhere because he's a landscaper yeah. um, all outside where our dog walk, walks. And I'm like, dad, even if you're not going to do it for us, it's fine. But look at Macy. Like she's run, her face is in this where you just sprayed like two days ago. Like she's going to get this. And I know we love her. And if nothing else, you don't want mom on your case when Macy has to go to the vet. So if nothing else, do it for that. And um, he, he thankfully stopped. But now I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, my mom is a total clean freak. And I, I kind of inherited this. I just try to do it with better products. But I'm thinking about how spotless her floor is. And then, yeah, you're right. Macy runs with her little paws on there. And sure enough, she goes into the other room and she's always chewing on her paw and stuff. So I'm actually just, I'm super happy that Macy's in the place that she is now, but I'm, I'm realizing, wow, not only does our dog probably have these extra toxins, but all these dogs do. And that's actually statistically backed by what you just said. That's kind of crazy. <laughs> it, it is. It's insane. And, and that's the thing. Clean, being a clean freak is actually fantastic because you're removing this stuff, but choosing your cleaning product is incredibly important. So vinegar and water, I mean, it's, it's a, perfect solution. It's going to get rid of the garbage and leave no residue behind that's potentially toxic. Okay, cool. So we got the food, we got um, environmental toxins. And then I actually want to touch on this one specifically. I'm not sure if it's something that you get into a lot, but I I am huge on circadian biology. I'm fascinated by light and stuff. And I, you know, I do the whole, I've been doing it for years, the blocking the blue light at night. I found that to be profound for my health. I get out and catch morning light every single day. And so I've always wondered with dogs, like I know that they have different receptors, so it's not probably identical to us. I even understand that if I'm not mistaken, some dogs would have been more 
like wolves aren't they nocturnal to some degree or am i completely wrong with that uh they they do have nocturnal activity but most of their hunting activity is during the day yeah but and, Fair you know, okay. and then That's there's wrong. coyotes that are definitely out there hunting at night so it, it's kind of a mixed mixed bag okay cats that might are be definitely nocturnal for sure yeah, yeah so I'll, okay so either way i'm wondering like I, if um, a family keeps their TV on all the time while they're sleeping, all of us would know that that's terrible. But I'm wondering about like their fluffy friend that's sleeping at the end of the bed that's also subject to that TV. So is that something that you've studied at all? Or what's your opinion on that? No, there's clear clear evidence that EMFs, uh, light pollution, all of that messes up everybody's circadian uh, rhythm, messes up their melatonin production, all of those things. So that's that's incredibly, it is important, um, but I'm going to tell you that like if we're going to talk about the top 10 chunks, that's down at the bottom of the list or close to it. Okay. Because sadly, the other big chunk is that we spay and neuter these guys before they ever reach endocrine competency. So the, I mean that. So it's interesting. There's a researcher at the um, uh, University of Oregon at Corvallis at the veterinary school that's actually linked excess luteinizing hormone production in spayed and neutered pets to creating receptors for luteinizing hormone on tissues that shouldn't have them. And they are the joints, the bones, the bone marrow, the uh, adrenal glands, the brain, the gut, you know, so all of these places where we're seeing chronic disease and her research is pointing to that as being one of the main causes of this epidemic of cancer we are seeing in our dogs and cats. So that's that's a huge problem. And again, you can't unspay or unneutered, and maybe somewhere in the future it, there will be some sort of hormone replacement. But what we can do, again, is support our pets to help clear excess levels of luteinizing hormone and just be cognizant that this is an issue. So that it's just fascinating research and horrifying at the same time. I mean, we solved a problem of pet overpopulation, but unfortunately, in the in the meantime, we created a monster with it. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah. yeah, it does. And I'm just trying to think, like, because I, again, we only had Macy in my family, and it was never really my responsibility. We kind of got her as a teenager, mostly for my sister. Now I love Macy to death, right? Um, I would take out anything for her, but I. I just, um, I never really thought about that aspect. And then we have Jaeger here, who was my girlfriend's dog. And of course, I love him now. And um, I'll put it this way. He's fully intact. He's a 90-pound dog. So you get to see it every day, right? It's in your face, kind of. And I'm thinking, like, he doesn't... No, he's by himself, though. He's not with other dogs. But he doesn't seem to show anything negative from this. In fact, this is actually one of the sweetest dogs I've ever been with. Like, he is not aggressive. He's not mean. And so, like, do you think... I mean, I guess this is so tough because I guess it's situational, but like, should we really be doing this to animals at all? Like, should we be spaying and neutering? Well, and this is, this is a really, it's a double-edged sword. It truly is. So when I started practicing, tell me again how old Jaeger is. Jaeger's four years old. Okay. So he's a young guy. And, but this is the thing is that I'm seeing dogs at Labradors at five and six dying of lymphoma. I mean, this is just crazy. So, but back to your question, um, should we be doing it at all? Here's the difficulty is that in Europe, they, they really don't. And they don't have anywhere near the incidence of cancer that we have in our pets in the U.S. The difficulty is when I started practice in 1990, the local SBCA took in, I think, 45,000 animals a year, and they euthanized more than 38,000. So that's a problem. And so this, you know, so theoretically, yes, it would be better if we did not need to spay or neuter or we had some way to control it. But the reality is, is that U.S. society is not set up for uh, a, a society of intact pets. Um, we the other issues are things like daycare, uh, boarding kennels. Um, they they can't get insurance if they allow pets that are intact into their facilities. So it's kind of a, it's a tough one. Uh, definitely a tough one. 
I didn't. I did not know that about the insurance either, because my my buddy owns a whole thing, and obviously we don't talk about that side of his business. I just think it's a crazy job, and God bless him for. <laughs> the Amen to that. There <laughs> yeah, like, dude, like I know you make great money, but I, there's just certain things that aren't worth it. So you got to really love what you do to be um to be doing that. But absolutely, I'm kind of thinking. So let's say hypothetically, I guess for most people, this wouldn't be realistic, but if your dog never had to go to daycare and you know that you're only ever going to have like one dog at any given time, like my girlfriend is never going to add on another dog um, while Jaeger is alive. So in that case, I mean, if they're not interacting randomly with other dogs and they're not going to daycare and you know that it's just going to be at the house, it would probably be clearly better than to keep them intact and let them do as nature intended. Exactly. And the other thing is, is that that doesn't mean that we can't do something like a vasectomy or an ovary sparing spay uh, that would prevent them from reproducing and not, you know, have the pet population pro- uh, overpopulation problem, I should say, take off again. But yeah, I mean, and the other thing is, too, is learning how to socialize our, our pets properly. So, I mean, what we spend a lot of time in Mexico and there's dogs running around on the beach. And for most Americans, they're like, Oh my God, you know, they're going to, but it's, you know, they've worked it out. They've learned how to socialize with each other and learned what appropriate behavior is and is not. I, I agree with that because I, Macy, she's good, but she, that my parents live on like three and a half acres, not rural, but getting there. She doesn't see other animals and she barely sees other humans. Like they, we usually go out. Like when I lived with my parents, we usually went out because no one really wants to drive the 30 minutes to us. They're all in town or the city or whatever. And so when Macy sees like another human or dog, it's a little embarrassing. Right. But, um, I got to see Jaeger with Maddie. I'm like, I can't believe how well behaved this dog is. And this is, you know, whether it's a fair stereotype or not, these are the ones that you're worried about, right? It's a big dog. Oh, and he's intact on top of it. So you're expecting a problem. And yet, Jaeger's like a thousand times better behaved than little Macy to be dead honest. So um, yeah, I think it training the animals right and, and socializing them properly, I think could go a long way. Amen to that. Cool. It would solve a lot of problems for us too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So all right, now um, I want to spend like the last 20 minutes or so, not only just talking about what you offer, but talking about all right, what are the steps then? Because I think everyone that is willing to listen to a podcast like this and, and listens to us in general even if they didn't have the answers, they already know that we're doing stuff wrong with our dogs and animals. So I'm already thinking like, wow, I've never really considered the environmental toxin thing outside of glyphosate. I need to go focus on that. Um, I've never really even thought, not that it's it's a little too late with Macy, but the whole spading and neutering thing, I didn't know that that could be contributing to the cancer thing. So let's talk about some action steps. Um, I think you mentioned some type of food. Do, do you produce and sell that or is that somewhere else they can No, buy? no. And so that's the whole thing. So the original crock pet diet I developed whew, back in 2006, just as the first pet food recall hit. And it is a recipe of home cooked food, proteins, brassica vegetables, other veggies, grains and or beans based and or, you know, some other starch based on what that individual pet can tolerate and then healthy fats. So it's a there's a course that we've got a great question and answer group every week to help you learn how to cook and how to modify the diet for your pet. Whether you do mine, whether you do Dr. Judy's, whether you do somebody else's recipe, start incorporating real food into your pet's diet. So if all you can do to start with is go down to Costco and grab a giant bag of Normandy blend vegetables, which has got some broccoli, some cauliflower, and some squash in it. Grab a handful, cook it up, throw it on top of the dry food. You're making the first step, and that is critically important. And for many pets, that will be like, holy smokes, this dog looks and feels so much better. So that is step one. Work on the Mm -hmm. food in the way that you can, and once you get more confident and you start to see the changes, you will want to do better because it, it just is astonishing sometimes. The second is to be cognizant. What products are in my home? I mean, do you have Mr. Clean in the under the sink? And, you know, God knows what's in Mr. Clean. He does a great job, but, you know, why? Um, so be cognizant of that. Look at the shampoos, the, you know, products that you may be using on your pets uh, the flea prevention, the heartworm prevention, the flea pills. So this never made sense to me. Let's give a dog an oral pesticide that's going to work for 30 days, which means they have to eat it, absorb it into their fat, and then release it to the skin to cl- kill the fleas. So 
to, I mean, yeah. So just be super aware of what you're doing and start to question, is this really in my pet's best interest? Scale the things back that you can look for natural options for heartworm prevention, if possible, for heart, for flea control and, and talk with your veterinarian. You may not get much good feedback, but at least you're going to know where they stand. Vaccinations, um, it's really clear. The literature was super clear in 1994, I think was the first paper Dr. Schultz published, showing that the duration of immunity after a properly executed puppy or kitten series and a booster at roughly 16 to 18 months of age was at least three years and in many cases up to seven. So ask your veterinarian for titers. Uh, which is a blood sample to see if they're still protected against a particular um, core vaccine issue like distemper or parvovirus. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then just from there, work on controlling inflammation, work on supporting detoxification. And that can be as simple as adding in omega-3 fatty acids, probiotics to help support the microbiome and milk thistle to help the liver get rid of excess garbage. So that's the simple everyday, day in, day out, keep my pet healthy plan. Nice. Well, and the good news is if you're focused, especially with the chemical side, if you're focused on just bettering your own health in your own home, it seems like a lot of this would would go fairly well together, right? Because if you're you're cooking your own food, like Okay, cool. Get something going for the for the puppy too, right? If right you on. stop using toxic cleaners, you're automatically helping them. That that seems like it all works together kind of nicely. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so you know we we know our pets are our family, so these are things that if we're aware that they are problems that we would do for our children, um, mm-hmm. and you know, and that's we've we're just doing it for the four leggers. I have, um, you know, actually I had this written down, but we got so into it that I honestly forgot this one. So I will preface this so that I will put you in a weird position. I'm curious. So what is your opinion about the current, if I may ask this, the vaccine schedule for the dogs? And I hate that I even have to disclaim this, but of course the default is not to be reasonable in today's world. So just to be clear, guys, just because we are on a functional podcast does not mean I'm, this is not an anti-vaccine thing at all. But I think most of us, like when you're in the functional space, what you the reasonable opinion for most people starts to be, it's not no vaccines. It's like, okay, do we need to give the kids all of these? I think that's a reasonable question. So I have the yeah. same question for the dogs. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do any ever, but are we giving too many? Because I've never had to give these vaccines to a dog. And like Maddie's getting shots for uh, Jaeger like every other few months sometimes for like ticks or this thing or that thing. So is that overdone, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, that's clear. So, again, the research started in 1994, um, showing duration of immunity was much longer. And then the other thing that happened was cats started getting fibrosarcoma uh, tumors at injection sites. So it's like, whoa. So that actually, to to you know, that was super for veterinary medicine because it made us ask, do we really need to give these vaccines every year? And what's creating the problem for cats? So we asked the questions and uh, we got some answers. And unfortunately, many of my colleagues don't follow the correct protocols. So the American Animal Hospital Association has been publishing vaccine protocol recommendations for, oh golly, 30 years now. And they divided vaccines into core, non-core, and not recommended. And so core vaccines are distemper parvo rabies. And the recommendation is for puppies, uh, 12 weeks, 14 weeks, if they get a vaccine for the first time, then they're good for the puppy series because maternal antibodies have dropped at 12 weeks sufficiently to allow the puppy to create its own antibodies, revaccinate it one year, and then going forward, do titers. Non-core are things like leptospirosis, Lyme vaccine, um, and there's a couple of others. And then non-recommended are ones like coronavirus that was always a vaccine in search of a disease. And the flu vaccine is sort of in that category. So with the non-core, what you have to think about is, is there Lyme where I live? And what's the incidence map look like? And are there other tick-borne diseases like anaplasmosis, excuse me, anaplasmosis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, 
And if that's the case, the Lyme vaccine is not going to protect against those. And it probably doesn't protect it, it, it's got a, it's got an on again, off again track rack, track record. But what's important there is doing really good tick control because Lyme is terrible, but so are the other diseases. So if you're not protecting it against ticks, you're inviting problems. Leptospirosis, again, you have to look at the incidence map for your area. Is, uh, you know, if it's a really high incidence, then okay, consider it knowing that, uh, according to Dr. Schultz, if the vaccine is not given at least every six months, which no veterinarian does, then your dog is not protected against leptospirosis. Um, and he's had to sort of, he, he, he's done a lot of research for almost every company, um, and he's had to sort of tone that down a little bit to be able to keep doing the other good work that he's doing. So think your way through you know, do you, are you going to take a malaria vaccine if you live in California? Probably not because the incidence of malaria in California is probably about zero. So just think your way through. You can Google stuff. What's the incidence of leptospirosis in dogs in Flint, Michigan? And then you can go from there. Right. Cool. Yeah, but you're right. There's rational discussion about this doesn't happen. And unfortunately, veterinarians are now strong arming people to get annual vaccines saying, okay, I won't see you anymore if you don't do this, even though the science says that's not the correct thing to be doing. And thank you, because I'm glad I still got to the opportunity to ask that question, because I just like to me, the fact that human vaccines, too, have turned into things like religion and politics. I just I can't understand this because I the people that go to the extreme on one end and say no vaccines ever, they're all bad. I say, okay, do you think some medications are useful some of the time? Every single one of them will say yes. I'm like, so why would that not work for vaccines? Now, on the opposite end, some people will say, because if you come up with the idea that perhaps a vaccine caused any type of side effect or downside, they're like, no, that's impossible. That doesn't happen. And I ask them, do some medications or does every medication have some chance of causing some side effect? And they're like, oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, but vaccines are exempt from that. So I, I argue both sides with it. I'm like, guys, if, if we could just stop going so extreme, maybe we can figure out some answers here and say, all right, which ones are absolutely necessary to or necessary might not be the word, but absolutely pros outweigh the cons versus right. which ones are like, okay, are we just doing this? Cause someone said that we were supposed to do it and we never really thought about it. Like you said, because this um, is with- the standard of care. Right. And yeah. that is a problem. <laughs> like, and I'll give you, so, I mean, I am not anti-vaccine. I'm pro-vaccine for specific things because I can tell you, I have treated 30 cases of Parvo every day for six weeks in the summer for years. And it's horrible. It's horrifying. I have also, I got a rabies vaccination when I was in veterinary school. I had a horrible reaction to it, but that's an issue for me uh, individually. There are vaccine reactions that happen. There are ways to help support pets so that they don't happen. But you just, again, it's an individual decision and it's also what's actually a problem out there. So yeah, yeah, we, we have to have a rational discussion and unfortunately that's not happening. Cool. Well, thank you for that. Um, all right. So now I want to ask, because I, I got to get to a client testimonial too, because I'm sure there's been some amazing things that have happened over the years. But to be clear, can people, because you offer stuff online, but can people work with you in person still? Like you're practicing, right? Uh, no. So here's what I'm oh, doing, okay. actually. Uh, so we, yes, you can, we've got a website, drruthroberts.com. We've got the courses available for sale there. We have supplements available for sale. What I'm doing now is because, yes, I can work with people one-to-one, but that's very slow and I'm not helping as many people as I can. Mm -hmm. What I've done is actually develop a certified holistic pet health coach training program. So much like the human health coaching model, this has made a massive impact in people's health because, oh, by the way, if you, you know, get up and move and drink more water and maybe consider cutting a few things out of your diet, you're going to feel a boatload better and helping you take the baby steps into the big steps. This is what is going on. So I I started this program in June. 
I have 12 graduates now that are certified. They're out there helping people in astonishing ways. And because I'm able to continue to support them with weekly coaching calls, if they hit a problem with a, a particular pet what they're working with, we can walk through it and help them solve the problem. But in this way, uh, we are making a massive impact on pet health when people are getting stonewalled by their veterinarians. And, and I don't mean to bash my profession. They're under tremendous duress. I mean, they're trying to see complicated medical cases in six to 12 minutes. And it's just, you cannot do the job well doing that. So that's where my main focus is right now is training and supporting holistic pet health coaches. And so that is the way that you can get support to start figuring out what are the lifestyle changes I need to do? What do I need to talk to my veterinarian about for my dog with kidney disease? So these folks can give you the information you need to ask intelligent questions really maximize the value of any veterinary visits you've got and help you figure out what the heck is going on uh, when you get some of those lab results back. Dr. Roberts, I both love and hate you. I love you for creating this. I hate you because the second my animal-loving, future sanctuary-owning girlfriend hears this, I'm going to know when she listens, but she's going to call for a meeting for the uh, the couple's budget. And she'll be like, hey, let's, let's talk buddy real quick. <laughs> right, right, um, yeah, right on. And I'm going to be the one to initiate it. So I know when she initiates, I'm like, yeah, she heard Dr. Yeah, Roberts' podcast heard, all of a sudden. Dang it. Oh. I'm, no, I'm not joking, though. She, I can picture her actually doing this because her, her real dream is to own this whole sanctuary for animals and stuff and just – and like a wildlife sanctuary, right? So they're still right. able to kind of free roam, but she's got a whole vision for this. And so the fact that she's about to graduate FDN in like a week and a half after recording this, uh, she has her, right on. actually, while we were speaking, she's doing one of her final uh, practicals for the course. That's amazing. But I, I can picture this, um, that could be next. That, that's just awesome. What a cool thing to create. I mean, this is going to be big. Yeah, it is. It's going to be huge. And and that's the thing. For, for the FDN folks, we have... Uh, well, I mean, there's two things that are just amazing. Uh, one is that we're offering a $500 <clears throat> excuse me, discount on the class itself. Uh, it, it is a $5,000 course, um, but we've got several payment options available. And I think that Reed is offering a bonus as well for yes. folks that sign up. Yes, so, this makes more sense now. So anyone that I believe it's still April 30th, don't quote me on it. It'll be in the show notes, guys. So just um, go to the show notes and we'll have all the details there. But if you sign up for Dr. Roberts' course before a certain time frame, you will actually get one of the FDN advanced courses for free. So um, you'll have a heck of a lot of learning to do in the next year or so. But hey, that's always um, that's never really a problem for this community. I think they love doing that. So this this right is on. big though because there's no shortage of pets and so many. I mean, I'd love if all these humans did this, but this might actually be more of an entryway to get humans to do FDN stuff than the other way around because they'll do anything for their pets. That, exactly. And and that's always been my secret back door is that, you know, I lived and walked when I was talking for pets and, and people would see what was happening with their pets and see what was happening with me. And they're like, oh, I should do this, too. And, yeah. and I had a guy that he, he was my optometrist. I went to see him and he said to me, you know, Ruth, I got to thank you because through what you did by teaching us how to cook for our dogs and cats, we realized that what we were eating was hurting us. And mm -hmm. so we made massive changes in, in how we eat, how we feed our children. And it's just, it's made everybody healthier, but that's exactly that's it. I mean, all of these, we're all mammals, right? So it's all going to, it's yeah. going to work for everybody. Yeah. I got to, um, even if it goes a couple minutes over, totally fine. Cause I had to get this question today. I always like to ask people when they're working with humans, what's like one of their favorite testimonials, but now between the work you've done and the practitioners you're training, I don't care where it came from. I'm just curious. Like, I want to see how good this can get. Like, what is one of your favorite stories? Like, I don't know if there's animals with diseases that get reversed or maybe it's just an extension of life or quality of life, but what's your favorite one that you've heard so far? Oh, man, it's tough. I mean, there's so many amazing things from my own patients. But one of the best things was from my one of my students who's now graduated. He, he has a massage business for dogs. And so he was already working closely with with uh, with dogs and, and especially with folks in the agility world. And so he got a client and started, you know, this dog, this lady had a very, very itchy dog and they tried everything, steroids, Apoquil, Cytopoint, all this chemicals and, and medications to control the symptoms. 
he got her to commit to cooking and adding in a fairly high dose of omega-3 fatty acids, adding in some uh, probiotics, and adding in the supplement uh, to balance the diet and, and provide glandular support. And in about mm, three weeks, she was weaning the dog off of medication with absolutely no issues. I mean, and, and so he's like, oh, wow, this really, really was easy. <laughs> and and this woman is incredibly happy because now her dog is not on all these potentially um, disease-inducing medications. Nice. And Guys, they got such a short life compared to us. Not that we couldn't argue our life short in the grand scheme of things, but I, I just the last thing we want to do is like, I mean, you waste a year of their life. It's, it's a lot different than wasting a year of ours when we're sick, right? I mean, that's a fraction, a, a notable fraction of what they're doing. So I'm just, um, you're getting my wheels turning. And that I hear so much stuff on this podcast that it's like, I'm excited for everyone, but I don't really think about it personally. But this, you're getting me because I'm like, all right, one of my business partners for our functional medicine studio, his original business is, is like I said, he owns a dog kennel with 50 dogs. He's super popular in the area. So I'm like, hmm. We go through Dr. Roberts' course, and then we have him, and we already have qualified the clients because they're paying like $4,000 to do these board and train programs with him. So they have money for this kind of stuff. I'm like, all right, we might have something here, my friend. And it's um, it seems easier to work with dogs and humans sometimes. <laughs> it is. And, 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 you know, and that's all good stuff. And that's the thing, uh, Evan, is that in this program, yes, you, you know, you get the coaching calls with me, so you get support during and after. Uh, but you also get a mentor to work with one-to-one. So if you're hitting like, oh my God, traditional Chinese veterinary medicine is freaking me out and I'm really struggling with it, you have somebody to talk to to help walk you through that, start to understand it a little bit better. So, And we've got such an amazing community of people. They're all supportive of each other. Uh, And that's the other big thing is part of what I teach is how to promote yourself so that you can actually make this a business and support yourself, your family, and do what you love at the same time. Very cool. Um, Is there any other place that people can follow you? I don't know if you use Instagram, Facebook, or whatever, but is there any place people can follow you or, or check out your stuff? All that stuff. Instagram, Facebook. Uh, we have a really huge YouTube channel. Um, we've okay. got some stuff going on on TikTok. Yeah. So just look for Dr. Ruth Roberts. Uh, you'll be able to find me kind of anywhere. Awesome. I'll have that down below for you guys. Now, this is interesting because we usually finish with my signature question. And so um, you can answer it any way you want. We might have already talked about this in the pet sense. So again, you interpret it the way you want. But normally what we ask is if in this case, I could give Dr. Roberts a magic wand and you could wave it and get every single person in this world or dog to do one thing for their health or get them to stop doing one thing. What is the one thing that you would get them to do? Mm -hmm. I would get them, dog and people, to spend at least three minutes a day together with no telephone, no electronics on, no distractions, so that they are both completely present and communicating, you know, in the ethers, so to speak. But I think that, I mean, it's super clear that mindfulness is essential for us in this crazy world to stop and get some white space. It's also critical for our pets because if we're running around cranked up and wired and fired all the time, they're receiving that energy of anxiety. And if we will take the time to just let it go, calm down, sit back inside of ourselves and be present with them, that makes an enormous difference. Excellent. Thank you so much for hopping on with us today. With pleasure.